Welcome to the Advocate Society. I'm Paul Tadros. And I'm Anthony Draper. The Advocate Society is a legal blog and podcast dedicated to discussing how the law interacts with social and political issues and affects our lives. So today uh, is our election episode where we'll discuss um, election 2020 and the court's role in this election. Today we have um, on our show uh, the University of Wisconsin Law School Dean, uh, Dean Daniel Takaji. Dean Takaji is a leading expert in election law, where he's written countless articles in many law reviews regarding um, election law and this issue. Um, we couldn't have a better guest um, and a better expert on our show. Um, and then afterwards, we had a, a small discussion uh, between me, Anthony, and Abby Chase from the Wisconsin Law Review, uh, where we talked more about election, uh, this upcoming election, and uh, their upcoming Wisconsin Law Symposium. Absolutely. It's a fascinating discussion and a very different take from what uh, most people will be hearing about election law and the issues that, that are happening at the moment. Um, so I think it's going to be really informative uh, and interesting discussion. Well, uh, without further ado, uh, here's the conversation and our uh, roundtable with Abby, and I hope you enjoy. Right. Uh, so, uh, Dean Takaji, welcome to the Advocate Society, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, the topic today is election law, specifically 2020. We know it's a pertinent topic. Uh, but before we kind of get started on what's going on now, uh, just kind of give us a brief history on like how courts have intervened in elections in the past. Um, is it a normal thing for courts to um, intervene every election? And, and how have they um, intervened? Yeah, so um, courts have been active in elections for some time, including federal courts. Uh, if you want to go back far enough without giving too much of a history lesson, um, you can trace it back to a decision that came down in 1962 called Baker versus Carr. Before that decision, for, for the most part, matters having to do with elections, including voting rights, um, were typically considered political questions. Uh, that is a term of art in law that means not necessarily a question that involves politics, but rather a question that's reserved for the political branches. And in Baker versus Carr, the court articulated a new test for what counts as a political question, which effectively made questions of election law, including the principle of one person, one vote, fair game. So over that period of time, since 1962, we've seen increasing federal court involvement for uh, in elections, uh, federal court involvement in elections. A signal moment was, of course, the 2000 election 20 years ago now, where the Supreme Court famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, intervened to effectively decide the outcome of that election by calling off the recounts that were going on in the pivotal state of Florida on the ground that they violated the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. Over the last two decades, we've seen a lot of litigation over elections, especially election rules like voter identification, voter registration, voting technology, lines at the polling place, 
uh, challengers at at polling places. Um, many of these issues, absentee ballots, uh, have been litigated in a number of courts, state and federal, over the last 20 years, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. We've seen another uptake this year. Uh, at last count, earlier this week, we had 279 election law-related cases that were uh, concerning the COVID pandemic. Um, a lot of uh, cases have been brought mainly having to do with mail voting, including absentee voting, as well as with signature requirements for getting off the ballot on the ballot. So it's been a very busy election season in 2020. One of the most interesting things I think about election law and especially when the courts get involved is um, how to frame one's ability to elect uh, whether it's a right or you know a privilege and um, I know there's been a lot of cases where like, more conservative courts have kind of reined in more um, mm -hmm. or laws that give people more ways to vote and expand that the um, types of people who can vote. Um, what is your kind of view or thoughts on whether you know the ability to vote should be ever expanding to include make it as accessible as possible, or should there be some sort of balancing between restricting access and giving it? Right. So there's no doubt, first of all, that the right to vote is a right. And it is a right that is protected by the United States Constitution, by state constitutions, as well as by federal and state laws. That much is perfectly clear. It's been clear since the Yikwo versus Hopkins case way back in the 19th century that the right to vote is a fundamental right. That is, it is fundamental, as Yikwo said, because it is preservative of all of our rights. But the scope of that right has long been and remains today fiercely contested and is going to likely to remain that way. So starting with the federal constitutional dimension of the right to vote, what courts generally apply in determining whether there's been a violation of the right to vote is a balancing test. So for example, take a voter identification law. The question is, first of all, whether th that law imposes a severe burden on voting. Um, in considering whether it's a severe burden, courts will look to how greatly it impedes uh, someone's right to vote, how great a burden is it, how many people are affected, are there disparate effects on certain groups, like poor people, for example. Uh, they'll also consider the state's interests. So if it's a severe burden on voting, courts are supposed to apply strict scrutiny. In practice, it's rare to find courts saying that a particular law like a voter ID law or restriction on absentee voting imposes a severe burden on voting. But courts will often find some burden on voting, often a substantial burden on voting, uh, which requires the state to come back and justify that law. So balancing tests are pretty familiar in constitutional law generally. And this is one of the places within which we see this. As your question suggests, 
There are also protections that have been afforded by um, statute, including by Congress. Um, probably the most famous of them is the Voting Rights Act, where the court has in recent years, most notably in the Shelby County versus Holder decision, cut back on the Voting Rights Act's protections. Formerly, the Voting Rights Act's uh, sections four and five required certain states, mostly states in the South, to get advanced permission to make changes to their voting rules. That was called preclearance in Shelby County versus Holder. A majority of the Supreme Court on a five to four vote said that the coverage formula used to determine those states and localities that are required to preclear their voting changes was unconstitutional. And that effectively um, uh, ended the system of preclearance that had existed since the Voting Rights Act had been enacted in 1965. So yeah, you're right to say that the court has in some ways, uh, some important ways, rolled back protections for the right to vote and, and may do so more of that in the future. Um, we don't know, of course, but um, there is a conservative majority on the court, which has gotten to be stronger with the death of Justice Ginsburg. So we will see what the future holds when it comes to voting rights. Uh, kind of um, you now bringing it back to the election that's coming up in November um, and the litigation that's potentially going to arise because of it. Um, Trump's legal advisor um, told um, reporters on the record that if there's any hint of voting irregularities, state legislatures can say, quote, we don't think the results of our state are accurate. So here's our slate of electors that we think properly reflect the results of our state. Um, Republicans uh, control state legislatures in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, and here in Wisconsin. All these states are battleground states where an argument can be made that the vote is going to be contentious. So is this a plausible challenge? Uh, can state legislatures do this? Um, is there precedent and is it constitutional? Um, it's a contested question. I think the extent to which after there's been a vote, state legislatures could change the rules of the game and effectively take away that vote. There's at least an argument that under Article 2 of the Constitution, they'd have that authority. But I think there's a counter argument that that would violate the United States Constitution's protection for the right to vote, including the Equal Protection Clause. So I, I think it is an area that is fraught with uncertainty, there might also be state-based legal challenges if state legislatures were to go that route. I don't think we're going to see it. I certainly hope we don't see anything like that. I think if, if state legislatures tried to take people's right to vote away by saying, we know you voted, but the way that you voted doesn't matter, we're going to overrule it after the fact by adopting a new law boy, that would be a, a terrible blow to our Republican democracy in the United States that I think all of us, virtually all of us at least, um, who aren't fans of authoritarianism would not like to see. Um, that said, um, you know, th there, are, there are some real questions that are going on in this election. Um, there are questions about 
absentee ballots, how those are going to be cast and counted. We know that a lot more people are going to be voting or at least trying to vote absentee. Voter registration is another huge issue that I I think not enough people have paid attention to. Remember, the usual means for registering to vote and for updating your registration have not been open during this election season. Uh, There's at least some evidence that voter registration is down or at least not up as much as it usually is in an election cycle, which could certainly have an impact on turnout in this election. So I guess, to be honest with you, I'm less focused on these issues that a lot of people are talking about. Will the Supreme Court again decide this election as it did 20 years ago? Will state legislatures intervene? I'm much more focused on the way that our registration and voting rules may actually make it more difficult for people to vote, which could have a negative effect on turnout and conceivably affect the result of the presidential election, as well as many down ballot races. That is what I would urge people to be much more focused on than the you know so-called stolen election things that, that tend to occupy a, a lot of space in media these days. Seventh Circuit um, weighed in on Wisconsin's own kind of attempted adjustments to access to voting um, for the upcoming election. And they, let me get the wording right, issued a stay that would prevent those changes from being made, um, arguing that it was too close to the election to make those changes. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that particular decision. I've read it. You've read it? Okay. Um, So what do you think about this argument that, you know, the pandemic's been going on for months now. Really, the the legislature has had, the political branches have had time to make the appropriate changes. um, And that, you know, this this late in the game, the courts really shouldn't be stepping in. Yeah, well, I think there's a tension there. On the one hand, um, it can sometimes be disruptive for courts, including federal courts, to issue orders changing the rules very close to an election. On the other hand, um, the right to vote is a fundamental right, and sometimes court intervention is necessary in order to protect that right, especially when circumstances are changing or public officials take last minute actions. So uh, there's a balance to be struck there. I, 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 um, I've read the Seventh Circuit's opinion, which is really following Supreme Court precedent, in, in, in particular a case called Purcell from many years ago, which seemed to um, discourage federal courts from issuing court orders, changing the rules very close to an election. I think we've honestly gotten too concerned about that. Not that, I mean, it's certainly true that late last minute court orders can sometimes be disruptive, but sometimes they're necessary in order to preserve people's right to vote. And it's actually much more disruptive for appellate courts to lift 
lower court injunctions that have been issued than it is to allow those injunctions to remain in, in place. So I think the Supreme Court in particular has not played a very helpful role by repeatedly intervening to lift federal court injunctions that were designed to protect the right to vote. The Seventh Circuit in this opinion from Wisconsin, which uh, got rid of an injunction that had, among other things, extended the period for mail-in registration and extended the period for receiving absentee ballots. Um, I, I think they were making a conscientious effort to follow Supreme Court precedent. It's less that opinion than the underlying Supreme Court precedent that I think is problematic here. Kind of building off of the Supreme Court precedent, I know you mentioned earlier that for the most part, uh, there is a balancing test that is done between the right to vote and um, the state uh, interest. Um, but it seems to me that the Supreme Court is leaning one way. It's, it's leaning more towards protecting state interests and less so much protecting um, the, the right to vote. Um, is that because of the makeup of the court at this time, or is it more so um, that the Supreme Court just really doesn't like getting involved in election issues. Yeah, or, I, I, I think, um, well, it's both. Uh, so y- your insight is quite right. The Supreme Court has leaned pretty hard away from protecting the right to vote in recent years. And, you know, what's interesting is they've done so not so much by altering the substantive law governing elections, as they have through procedural means. That is from saying courts should not be issuing injunctions, at least federal courts close to an election, even when the rationale is that a court order is needed to protect the right to vote. So is it the ideology of the court? Is it something else? You know, it's sort of always hard to guess at what is really motivating the the court. Uh, So I'm not going to go there, but the effect has certainly been to weaken federal legal protection for the right to vote. Um, Looking, I guess, more broadly or beyond the the more technical aspects, what should kind of the everyday voter who isn't you know, familiar with court decisions and appeals and things like that, what should they be kind of looking out for, um, keeping on their mind as we come closer to election day? I think for the everyday fo- voter, there are a couple of things I would suggest. First, make sure you're registered to vote. Here in Wisconsin, we're lucky. Um, We have online registration. We also have election day registration. Uh, So you could actually go into the polls on election day and uh, register for the first time or update your registration. That is a great thing that I think is likely to save us from some of the problems that we can expect to exist in other states, including other swing states like Pennsylvania and uh, Florida in this election cycle. It would also be great for people to volunteer as poll workers. Remember, 
So many of our poll workers in this country are people who are older, including elderly people who are most at risk from the pandemic. It would be a great service to our electoral process if people who are younger and are in good health were willing to volunteer in this election, as many have done. But I think we're really likely to see polling places, at least in some places, especially urban areas, short staffed in this election cycle. So if it's not too late, wherever you happen to be, it would be great if people were willing to volunteer to serve as poll workers. In kind of uh, um, sum, uh, summing it up, uh, what are your predictions? Like, I know, you know, like there's 279 pending cases right now on the election. Um, what are your predictions post-election day? Um, are we going to see the hotly contested election um, uh, in the courts, uh, like this election being decided in the courts? Or um, like you said earlier, is it going to be more of um, a technical arguments that are going on in the courts? Like what should be, people be looking yeah. at um, post-election day? Right. So after an election, there are really two big things that people, including candidates and parties, can fight over. One is the counting of absentee ballots. And we're likely to see more absentee ballots in this election because a lot of people are, not without good reason, some of them at least, afraid to go to the polls on election day. Um, Second thing that the parties and candidates can fight over, provisional ballots. We don't have a lot of those in the state of Wisconsin because we have election day registration, but in other states, like Ohio, for example, there are, where I used to live, there are a lot of provisional ballots. So those are the two big things that nowadays candidates and parties can fight over. There are also sometimes ambiguities in people and how people have marked paper-based ballots that can be grist for potential litigation, but really absentee ballots, provisional ballots. And there are administrative processes that all of the states have for resolving those disputes. If those can't conclusively resolve them, there is the possibility for litigation, most often in state court, but sometimes in federal court as well. Will we have a contested election at the presidential level? Well, it really depends on how close it is. And, uh, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is going to be. I'm not sure that anyone really does because turnout is much harder to predict nowadays that, or in, in, a, in, a, in a COVID uh, cycle than, than, it, than it is normally. Um, if the polls are right, it's not looking like a terribly close election right now, but um, if they're substantially off, well, then we could be looking at a contested election scenario. And even if we don't have that at the presidential level, it's certainly possible that we could have that for state level races or races further down the ballot. Kind of uh, following up on that, um, do does the court take into account how close the election is? Like if it is a substantial victory for one side over the other, does the court take into that into account or is it mainly just an administrative procedure? Well, you're not going to have... Um, Uh, anybody bringing litigation over an election result if it's not close it's it's the close races when somebody's gonna sue and therefore where the courts are going to be getting involved
federal government generally lets states figure out how they want to run their elections. Um, but as you've said, we're seeing an increasing amounts of litigation in federal courts about these decisions that states are making. Should the political branches of the federal government just decide we're going to kind of create some more uniformity and take a little bit of control away from the states yeah. to uh, you know, just make a better, more predictable system? Great question. I, I, personally, I would like to see Congress take a more active role in some respects. I, I think it'd be really tough to change our extremely decentralized system of running elections, which are mostly run at the local level in the United States in contrast to other countries which have a centralized election authority. There are, there are good and bad aspects to that centralization. Whether or not you think the good things outweigh the bad things, that's the system we have in the United States, and it's very unlikely to change. But we could have some uniform rules surrounding, say, voter registration, at least more uniform rules than we have. I think that would be a really helpful thing to have. For example, to have um, um, online registration required. I mean, there's no reason we shouldn't have online registration. Most of the states already have it, including us here in Wisconsin. Every state should have it in 2020. It's crazy that some states still don't, um, a minority of states. And, and we should also have um, um, same-day registration, in my opinion, which could be required by federal law. If you look at the research concerning what electoral rules and practices have the biggest impact on turnout, it's voter registration far and away that has the greatest track record of increasing participation. And so I would love to see Congress uh, enact a law that at the very least requires those two things, uh, online voter registration and updating of registration in every state, as well as same day registration, including election day registration in all of the states. Well, Dean Dakar, it seems like we are uh, out of time, uh, but thank you so much for being on the Advocate Society. Uh, and. This was a great conversation, and hopefully folks do go out uh, to vote uh, this November 3rd. Thanks for having me, Paul and Anthony. Thank you very much. Take care. Now, uh, we're shifting gears here. Uh, we have um, Abby Chase from the Wisconsin Law Review on uh, today uh, to kind of discuss uh, what Dean Dakaji had to say um, and kind of talk more about election law and this upcoming election. Thank you guys for having me on. All right. Well, Abby, what was your initial thoughts um, from uh, the conversation that we had with Dean Takaji? Yeah, I thought it was a good conversation. The one thing that I heard uh, repeated a lot was that uh, the right to vote is a fundamental right. And I think that that's more important than ever. And it seems to be really at odds with this concern about uh, credibility and about uh, fraudulent elections that seems to be taking up uh, a big part of the conversation uh, this election cycle. And I don't think that we've seen that in years past. So um, I agreed with what he said that, you know, we tend to focus on some of like the more 
eye catchy big issues about voter fraud and and stealing an election. Uh, but at the same time, I thought that it was really important that he brought it back down to the issues uh, that, you know, are maybe less attention grabby and, you know, they don't make as good of a headline, but are still important, which is how you count absentee ballots and how voter registration works. So I, I thought it was an interesting conversation. And I think it was important to reframe it from a more uh, intellectual perspective, as opposed to just like a media focused perspective. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I think uh, it overall was a great conversation. I learned so much just from like that, uh, the 20 minutes that we had with him. Um, uh, I do, while I'm, I completely agree that we need to focus on the smaller issues. Those are the issues that actually impact voter um, registration, voting rights in general. Uh, I, I, part of me, the back of my mind still thinks like, part of us should prepare for this scenario just in case it does happen and just in case the election is close. Uh, he kept hinting um, that voter registration was not um, higher than it was at 20, in 2016, which is a little concerning uh, because um, between 2016 and 2020, people became eligible, eligible to vote. Uh, they turned 18 um, and we're not seeing the same spikes that we saw in 2016. So does that mean we're going to have a low turnout? that we really don't know we have to wait till november 3rd to um to figure that one out but um i still think we should be preparing for a bigger scenario i know it's media catching i know it's eye popping but um it it's it should, some something we should prepare uh for i think it's important to realize too that the majority of people who are going to be voting by mail are more likely to vote for joe biden and i think that if we're having this rhetoric where we're talking about needing to know uh, the results on election night, well, that's never been historically true. Uh, and also we might see uh, a shift uh, moving from one party uh, to the other uh, by counting those other votes. So yeah, I definitely agree that it's it's still important to keep uh, an eye on it. Anthony, yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, I thought it was super interesting just to see the difference between where we're kind of all getting our info from most of the time, the media, um, in its various forms, and then contrasting that to what a leading expert in the field of election law is talking about, um, and not to say that the media is wrong, I think they're still talking about um, things that are actually happening and that are important, but does highlight kind of that we're actually missing um, a big part of the narrative that's important just because it's not as clickable or as attention-grabbing. So I think just that alone made uh, what he was saying really interesting because it's not something we're hearing a lot about, but like he said, has mo is more important to this election in terms of like it being a less controversial and kind of predictable election with a result that doesn't get litigated to infinity. Yeah, one thing that caught my attention was that there's 279 cases right now um, regarding the 2020 election. Uh, I only know of one or two halfly, like I, I just by again reading the clickbait headlines. Um, but I'm I'm not surprised that it's being litigated this much. But I'm I'm a little surprised at how much litigation has occurred already, and we're still 20 20 some odd days out from election day. 
How much do you think of that, Paul, comes from uh, states and kind of localities really having the discretion to make the rules and set the stage? Because I just have found it interesting in the last few weeks, I have never considered how different states are running these elections. I uh, voted by absentee and uh, there was a witness signature requirement. And uh, when I was helping my fiance who was voting absentee for New Hampshire, I realized they didn't require that same witness signature. Um, so it's just interesting to see how all of that comes to play. And I think that's also maybe part of the reason why we see so much litigation is because we don't have one centralized system. Yeah. And that, to me, like that, that makes sense, like to decentralize your election system. I think that's one way to avoid um, like any outside interference in an election is that it's so decentralized. Folks would have to interfere in so many localities in order to really have uh, like steal an election or swing an election. Uh, I, I agree though, like I think localities and states do have the power and like that's where you see the litigation most of the time. And to me, it's just so striking the differences um, that you see between states, like you mentioned. Um, in Texas, um, the governor um, for absentee balance said that there was, would only be one box uh, per county. Well, one county has 136 people live in it. Um, Houston is in one county and that's 4 million people. Both have one box to turn in their absentee ballots. So to me, uh, I think just in general, what this election has kind of show, like highlighted is the differences um, and whether we should have a standardized um, federal um, set of rules for elections or whether um, we should be holding more uh, localities um, accountable. That kind of remains to be seen, but yeah, that, that explains a lot. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um... I brought up um, having a more centralized kind of standard with Dean Takaji. Um, and most of the time I, I think I'm for that, but I do see the benefits of it being localized just in terms of like, it is more difficult for external forces to play a part in an election when there's at, at least 50 different ways that the election's being run. Um, I do think with the benefit from federal standards, like that set out, you know, the minimum requirements that you have to meet, you know, like you do have to have more than one box when there's more than a million people, you know, in your county. And I, I think I heard someone say this somewhere, attempted to say it was Elon Musk on Joe Rogan, which would make it really reputable. He basically drew the analogy that like we have online banking, which is super secure. We have the like portal that you have to go through. Why can't we do that for elections? And I think that's a great question. I think something like that's really difficult to implement in a country of this size, especially with such localized election standards. But I, I think that the fact that that just doesn't seem like a possibility just highlights um, America's reluctance to advance technologically because out of fear, um, when I think they could really benefit from that advancement. My only time I think that I voted absentee mail-in was when I voted for Brexit. And it was obviously it was just like a yes or no ballot. So it was a bit simpler, but it was just such a simple process that when I he started hearing all the controversy surrounding this one, I was just dumbfounded that it's uh, as big of an issue as it is because it should, it should be as simple as it can possibly be and yet it's very complicated and it's not the only country with complicated ballots but I definitely don't think the current system is optimal in terms of being easy to understand easy to complete without making errors 
at every single step of voting in this democracy, there's chances to mess up in ways that your vote won't be counted. I think a lot of those ways that you can mess up aren't even being discussed by the media or by people who are in charge of all of this. That brings me, uh, I watched an episode of Last Week Tonight uh, with John Oliver, and he talked about how uh, signature matches uh, are an issue why ballots will often uh, be rejected and not counted, um, and signatures change over time. So exactly like you said, certain issues um, about things that people don't even realize are issues, you could vote and think it counted, and it might not have because your signature didn't match what was, what was on file. Yeah, I've seen that, that sitting an increasing issue with the youth of today um, because they don't really have signatures. Um, like, so you can't signature match someone who's 20 years old that hasn't even learned cursive and just writes their name down. It's not going to match barely ever. Um, so that again is a, an illustration of a somewhat archaic part of voting in America that seems like it should be updated to match the times. Which I think br uh, brings me to another bigger theme, like why is it so difficult to vote? Um, and I think um, going back to like the case law that we, that Dean Takaji talked about, um, it seems that every time the Supreme Court comes out with something that makes it harder to vote or more difficult or changes a rule or goes back to a rule. But again, it's all hindering um, folks from voting. Um, is it, do you guys think it's political or do you think it's just like how the law is written? Like folks, uh, like the way the law is, um, it kinda um, favors the state and hindering voting versus um, making it uh, easier and more accessible. Um, yeah, I, well, I mean, I, there's this idea of a political question. And I think uh, inherently anytime you're talking about who is going to be elected, I understand the political consequences but at the same time, voting is something that everyone has a right to. So in that sense, I don't think that that's political per se. And I think that it would be easy enough for the courts to distinguish that from being a political question. Um, but yeah, it is very interesting. I, I think that they often try to say, we're just going to leave people as they are, and they don't want to get involved, and that ends up doing more harm than good in certain cases. Yeah, I think there's an element of every time a decision is being made, it almost feels like they're tiptoeing, like they don't, they're walking on eggshells. Um, and in doing so, they make these tiny little tweaks that over time have created a very complex, overly complex system. Um, interesting, um, like, case law on this. I think it, I think it was even in Wisconsin where... Um, liberal government made it, you know, very easy to vote, implemented a lot of the things that Dean Takaji was saying he thinks every state should have, like same day or day of vote registration. And then a more conservative government was elected and they were trying to rein that back in. And the court was basically like, if that's, uh, if they're doing it out of their political ideology, that's okay. And I just thought that was a very strange thing that like, um, 
it would be political to restrict voting access and not, you know, like that just seems so antithetical to the like basic ideas that started this country um, that like, I have a feeling that if we expand voting, that's just going to give more votes to people that don't support me. So I'm not going to let them vote. It's like, well, I think they should probably vote if they meet like the basic constitutional requirements. And, and the fact that the court was okay with that, I found very troubling and concerning. Um, and I don't think, and that is really following the Supreme Court precedent, which is unlikely to change anytime soon. So um, I'm not very hopeful for the ability to vote um, kind of matching its ideals of being a fundamental right because there's just so many people who aren't able to. Well, I, I, uh, I think like if it continues, if the court continues to say that it's going to be a political question, then our political branches have to step in, right? And I think the courts would then not, hopefully not strike down another Voting Rights Act that passes through. But I think for me, that, that was really a turning point when um, the Roberts Court, um, in the, I forget the year, but it was earlier in the 2010s, struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act, making it more difficult to vote, um, kicking people off voting rolls. Um, to me, that just the, the definition of what anti-democracy is, like that is being anti-democratic. Um, so if um, it is a political question, then it, it really is going to be up to our political branches, the legislature and the executive branch to kind of really step in. Um, and right now, it only seems that one party is interested in expanding voting rights, and there's another party who's interested, uh, whose sole uh, interest is to kind of limit them. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's the political question that courts keep punning, um, but someone has to decide it, and hopefully it is the electorate um, here in 2020. Uh, you all think will be the outcome in the election in terms of the courts? Like, let's not say who's going to win um, this election. That is a political question. Um, but um, what do you think the court's role is going to be? Um, come November and December? Well, that's a loaded question if I've ever heard one. Uh, it really depends on what the election looks like. If, uh, Like uh, Dean Tukaji said, if it's not going to be a close election, there probably really won't be uh, much that the courts have to say. Um, but at the same time, I think that this might be closer than people anticipate now, uh, especially considering if uh, we're going to cut things off um, at, uh, you know, counting based on what the results we have on election night versus counting later. So um, it will be interesting. I'm a little hesitant to give predictions just because I think there's so many factors that come into play with uh, how a court might deal with it, but uh, definitely stay posted. Uh, yeah, I, I would say taking Bush v. Gore as a precedent, I think I just hope the Supreme Court doesn't overturn the will of the people. So you know, if if Biden gets elected, great, then they should honor that. If Trump gets elected, fine, like honor that. But um, the initial call in Florida was Bush by 500 votes. And I think the, the Supreme Court found precedent there to basically say, hey, we need to stop the recount. Bush is the, elect uh, the victor. So if they want to honor the official results um, and throughout whatever reasoning that is, whoever's the winner, then I think that is best case. And regardless of the outcome, that's what the Supreme Court's role should be.
Um, so Abby, um, you are on also today uh, to share with us more information about the Wisconsin Law Symposium. So please fill us in, what's going on? Yeah, so I am the symposium editor along with uh, Connor Clegg for the Wisconsin Law Review this year. And our annual symposium is coming up. Uh, the theme this year is Wisconsin's intellectual history and traditions. And it will take place on October 22nd and 23rd. So that's next week, uh, Thursday and Friday. Thursday will be starting at 4 p.m. and Friday will be going all day beginning at 9 a.m. And Dean Tokaji will be our keynote speaker beginning um, Thursday at 4. And his keynote address is going to be on diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Wisconsin Law School. So we thought he was a really good selection for our keynote address because while we're looking at the past traditions of Wisconsin, we also want the symposium to focus on looking forward. And because he is the new dean, uh, he represents the future of the law school and our commitment to scholarship. So we're really looking forward about what he has to say and all, obviously about uh, you know what all of our panelists have to say uh, with our five panels as well. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all virtual this year, right? So folks can log in online and just uh, listen and uh, tune in? It is all virtual. Uh, there is an event link on Facebook that would have the registration link. Uh, we're doing registration through splash.com. Uh, you can also just Google the Wisconsin Law Review and move over to the symposium page. And it's very easy to register from there. It takes about one minute um, and you'll receive a Zoom link the day of. So we're really looking forward to having people tune in. We already have about 200 people who have registered. Uh, so we're really looking forward to a great turnout of students and attorneys and faculty. Awesome. Well, I will be in attendance. I'm sure Anthony will be in attendance out from California. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, Abby, uh, in this discussion. Uh, just a reminder to make sure to vote uh, November 3rd. Uh, the deadline to register online to vote is today, October 14th, uh, during this recording, but you can register the same day at your polling place. So make sure to vote. It's important. And without further ado, 